Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is possibly one of either the the least read, most avoided, or the most read and most controversial chapters in the Bible. It's one that some people avoid and one that some people have wore out. Every chapter should be one we rejoice in. Yes, even chapters in Leviticus. But here in Romans chapter 9, we're going to begin reading in verse 11 and read through verse 14. We're going to read that portion, even though we're going to go a little bit before that and go a little bit after that, to study the topic of unconditional election or God's sovereign choice. There's a pastor one time who's member was talking to a friend at work, and they were just talking about the Bible, talking about church, and having a good conversation, and then the member, a Primitive Baptist member, looked at their friend and said, well, what does your church believe about election? And their friend looked at them and said, oh, no, no, we don't discuss politics at church. (laughs) I believe that was actually Brother Ronald Lawrence that that happened in Florida. And it's kind of interesting. That's a very biblical word, actually. Election is mentioned here. It's mentioned by Jesus in Matthew, um, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 24. He talks about the very elect. It's a word that's throughout the Bible. It's one that's mentioned many, many, many times. Another pastor from Georgia one time was talking to his secretary about what their church specifically believed. He said, well, if you want to know what we believe, go read Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9. She came back to him the next week and said, you know, I've been reading the Bible my entire life. I've been to Sunday school, church, and she's a note taker. You know, I'm not one that writes in my Bible, not on purpose at least. That's not to say it's wrong, but I'm not one that writes in it. I just never have, but she was one that had wide margin, and there were notes everywhere, and then she, when she got to Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9, the pages were empty. <laughs> had never, ever opened the Bible there. She said, I'm shocked. She said, I'm not mad, I'm just shocked. I've never read much out of these chapters. Sadly, that's true for a lot of people, and it shouldn't be. These chapters are sometimes looked at with controversy, specifically chapter 9. Sometimes they're looked at with fear. In my humble opinion, they should be looked at with reverence and hope and thanksgiving. Well, let's begin reading in verse 11 of Romans chapter 9. It begins by saying, For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now instead of just going to the text and immediately talking about it, what has went on before? 
what has led up to this point to where Paul is going to discuss the election of grace, as we call it, unconditional election, God's sovereign choice in choosing a people that he loves, and there is a group of people to whom he does not love that the Bible is explicitly uh, explicit says that he hates and leaves in their sins. Well, Romans chapter 8 is probably one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, and it has kind of climaxed at that point as Paul has, at the beginning of Romans, talked about the depravity of man for the first two and a half chapters. Starting in chapter 3, he begins to talk about how we are justified by Christ and understand it by faith, justified on the cross. And through faith, we understand that we're justified by Christ. He discusses that all the way through chapter 4 to where in chapter 5 he begins to talk about the implications of that, that we shouldn't stay in sin, that grace may abound, but as instruments of God's righteousness, that we should act righteously. Leading into chapter 7, talking about how we've been divorced from the law, yet we still live in a physical body that we struggle with every single day, to then leading into chapter 8, the climax of Paul discussing here his theology, leading into chapter 8 by saying that our spiritual warfare is a proof of our spiritual life. And if we are in Christ through God before knowing us in verses 29 through 30, before Knowing us, for no, he did also predestinate. And those he predestinated, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he glorified. And he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's a climactic moment, isn't it? It's like fireworks. You remember the end of most fireworks shows. You'll have a, you know, one firework, another firework, and then at the end, it's like a thousand at the same time. And they're blaring the music, and they're really grabbing your attention. That's what Paul's doing here. He goes on to just look and say, look, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him us for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? To then finally saying, regardless of what happens in this life, though we are sheep led for the slaughter, as he quotes the psalmist, he then says, I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The transition from there to chapter 9 is interesting because he goes from that to then saying... I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. It's kind of weird how he transitions from the beauty of preservation and grace to then saying my heart hurts. Two reasons I think this. You'll see in chapter 10 that his heart hurts for his people to whom God loves among the Jewish people that can't see it. But specifically in chapter 9, he's answering a question. You can imagine that if you're told that God has a group of people for whom he loves and nothing can separate those people from God's love, which is true. It is absolutely true. There's nothing that can separate one of God's children from his grace, regardless of their actions, regardless of their unbelief, regardless of their doubting, regardless of how their life may get shipwrecked. The foundation of God stands sure the Lord knows them that are his. A detractor may, at the end of that statement, and I've noticed this, people will say this. Yeah, well, what about so-and-so? You you know, if God preserves his people, what about so-and-so? And here you can imagine that the Jews would be on fresh on their mind. Oh, yeah, well, what about the Jews? God said he loved this physical nation, yet he's about to take them off 
of the vine and graft in an unnatural branch, the Gentiles. If God really does preserve his people, okay, okay, what about the Jews? You see, Paul's transitioning to talk about a group of people that would make it look as though God could not or just did not preserve a people for whom he said he chose. You see how it transitions here. Now, I'll tell you those people that we see around us that may come to the knowledge of the truth, love Jesus Christ and flake off, there's two possibilities. You have somebody like Simon Magus that we come to see to be the biggest persecutor of the church. There may be people that don't have the love of God in them, but there may also be people like Solomon or David that God does love, does preserve, and yet their life is shipwrecked. They're miserable, yet God preserves them. We don't know. We'll never know in this life. And it's not for us to know, right? That's between God and his children. Yet God gives us an answer here specifically for Israel. Paul looks and says, first, I'm not against Israel. I'm not trying to do anything against them. My heart is for them. And so when I tell you this, basically, I'm not telling you this from a hard-hearted perspective. I love my kindred. I love my country. I love my nation. But he looks and says, not all of Israel is Israel. He gives this description of the Israelites by saying, listen, for I wish... For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He gives a definition of who these kinsmen are, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. I love how when Paul is writing about theology, it always brings him to the point of praising God, right? <laughs> he never just says, this is what we believe, and just puts his hand down. He always says, Christ came in the flesh, God blessed forever. Amen. Praise God. His theology led him to praise. Well, he says, you know, my heart does hurt for them. However, not as though the word of God hath not taken effect, have taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are... Israel. He looks and says, not everybody that is of the physical lineage of Abraham is a spiritual child of Abraham in that sense, or spiritual Israel. There's two different groups. Yes, everybody in Israel was a, a physical descendant of Abraham, but as we see in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, what does he say? They well, not 5 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 2, when it says that they are they who say they are Jews but are not. Equally, in John chapter 8, Jesus would look at some that were physical descendants of Abraham and say, you are of your father the devil. It wasn't because they were physical Jews that made them inherit the kingdom of God. There was a, there was a distinction there, and he's going to go on to say, look, there was Abraham, there was Isaac, and there was Jacob. Notice how he words this. Neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He said just because somebody was of the physical line of Abraham doesn't necessarily mean that they are God's child. He says, look, there was two children. There was Ishmael and there was Isaac. Yet God called the nation through whom? Isaac. Now God did bless also Ishmael as a faithful creator, but specifically the spiritual 
blessings that God promised to bring upon the world through the seed of Abraham came through Abraham then Isaac. God made a sovereign choice there. God made a sovereign choice. He goes on to say, that is, um, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. He looks and says, you see, just because you're physical Abraham doesn't mean that you are spiritual Abraham. He then uses another example, the one where we started out, speaking of Rebekah equally having two children. And not only this, not only Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, he's going to grab Isaac having two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Now, I will stop here and just kind of think about the way Paul is transitioning as he goes from talking about Abraham. Now, think about this. Abraham was called one man, called and chosen, called and chosen to separate apart from the nation. Now, that doesn't mean that I believe that everybody else in the world at that time was not a child of God. I believe that God has had an innumerable host from the start of time till the end of time, and that's God's business. But my point is that as a physical servant of his, he chose one person to know and follow him, right? One person. One person at that time, he chose to follow him in service. And then he gave a promise to him, he gave this promise of a promised seed, and he didn't say both from Ishmael and Isaac, but he said, through Isaac, your seed will be called. Then he goes on to say, look, not only Isaac, but Isaac had Jacob and Esau, yet I'm going to just use one and we'll see how that's beautiful in just a minute, the one that he did use. Okay, if you start at the beginning of Scripture and you see how God used Noah, and you see how God used Abraham, and you see how God used Isaac and Jacob, God chose a physical nation, not all the nations, and God chose to use David as a king. God chose the specific prophets. God chose the apostles. He chose John the Baptist. He chose all these people, but then we get down to me. No, God didn't choose me. I chose God. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> we can go all the way from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of the New Testament, and we see even in John chapter 15 where he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you that you may bring forth fruit. But no, you chose God. Brothers and sisters, the reason we have the capacity to turn to God in faith and say, My Lord and my Savior... I choose to serve you is because he has already chosen to save us. Amen. And let us not think highly of ourselves when we look through the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament and see God's sovereign choice and saying, this is what I'm doing. I choose that one and that one and that one. Notice it's also not arbitrary. Specific purposes he chooses according to his will. But through all them, we can't get all the way through the Old Testament. God choosing of a physical nation God choosing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God choosing the apostles. God choosing to very often not send the gospel to some places. And then get down to ourselves and say, no, we made this one, right? <laughs> no, brothers and sisters, God makes the choice. And notice you don't see Abraham saying, all right, Lord, I want to give my vote. 
You don't see Satan anywhere jumping up and saying, hold on, I'm going to cast my ballot. God's choice. I think because we live in a constitutional republic in which we get to vote, we very much value our choice, right? We value our opinion. I do. I value my opinion. Not your opinion, my opinion. <laughs> we all value our own opinion, our own thoughts. We all value our choice, our freedom, our liberty. And I think because of that, there's a little bit of a holdover into theology where people think that, well, their opinion matters in the courtroom of God and their choice has eternal consequences. Well, I'll tell you, as we'll see in just a minute, our choices, specifically Adam's choice, does have eternal consequences. And praise be unto God that God's choice overrules our choice. Amen. <laughs> But by the grace of God, we're not left to our own choices. Well, let's read the verses that we started with. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. He says he's using this specific example. God orchestrated this specific example and event to teach a lesson. For the children being not yet born. Notice they have done nothing good or evil. And if you look and put the choosing of a people specifically upon the action of men, you're not only contradicting this verse because they haven't done anything, right? They've done nothing at all. Neither having done any good or evil, but if you want to see God's view of humanity in general after we all are born, run over to Psalms chapter 14. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if any did good, right? Any sought him, any was going to follow him, any was going to just seek him out. What did God see? They are all gone astray. It is a blessing to know that God sees everything and will bring everything to justice, but it's equally very sobering to know that God sees all, right? <laughs> Every single thing that I do. And when God does look down through the portals of time, as it were, to see if any would accept him, what does he see? Left to ourselves, we continue to make the same bad choice. And specific to this, this text, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. It begins on this premise. He starts with this premise. The children are not able to do anything themselves. They cannot do good or evil. And it's for this purpose that he uses his example. The purpose according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. It's not according to our own action, but it's according to the determinate counsel of God. Amen. Now, he even shows how this is a reversal of what it is going to be. It, in verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. He looks and says, look, this is contrary to nature the way that we would think. He immediately acknowledges that the sovereignty of God and salvation is contrary to the way that we would naturally think. The elder shall serve the younger, especially in that day and time when inheritance was a really big thing, and that's why you would have a caste system, as it were, where people would marry off children of influential families to other influential families because they wanted to keep that system going, and you had uh, the older one had, had the privileged position, the younger one was secondary to that. Well, here he says this actually goes contrary to the way a human may think. Now, think about that. God starts off in this passage through Paul telling us that election itself runs contrary to the way we may think it needs to run. 
That should immediately tell us that if we get confused by it every now and then, well, Paul's already acknowledged that it is sometimes confusing. We can't figure all of the ends out. We just have to trust God by faith. But when you look at the two that he uses, as it is written, there again, quoting the Old Testament and using an Old Testament example, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, Jacob was an interesting character, wasn't he? The name itself means surplanter, a deceiver. If you go back and read the narrative of the Old Testament and just read through the Old Testament and see how Jacob acted, you would think that man is going to bust <laughs> eternal punishment wide open. <laughs> that gentleman right there, he's done everything wrong. That guy right there has tricked his um, father. He's split up, in a sense, the household. Now, you think about this. Um, what does favoritism in a household cause? You want to talk about the ultimate example of what favoritism between parents and children calls? Look at Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah. They're pitting against each other, plotting and all sorts of stuff, and it's causing all sorts of t turmoil to where he's having to go away. And, you know, he, he leaves. He's causing trouble. The entire time he's scheming, even when God manifests himself to him, I will not let you go until you bless me. And it's this constant battle with Jacob until God finally touches his hip. God finally touches his hip and changes his walk. That should tell us something. When God touches us, our walk is changed. Amen? You wrestle with God, you're going to walk away different. But the entire time you read in the Old Testament and you look at Jacob and you look at Israel, Jacob who is Israel, you see a man that we would think, that man doesn't deserve to be chosen. You know, I'll tell you, I was always the last kid on a team to be chosen, you know, when I was in school. There's a reason why I played trombone. <laughs> you know, the kids that, that, that aren't good at sports and probably aren't good at music, they play trombone. <laughs> the kids at the end of the line, they play trombone. I shouldn't say that. My precious niece, Lydia Grace, also plays trombone. So, <laughs> bless her heart, you know, she's, she's got uh, some of... Some of those features, too, that goofiness. You have to be goofy to play that. I mean, I was always chosen last. Nobody would want to choose me. I wasn't that athletic, necessarily. I could run fast, but that doesn't mean anything if you can't catch the ball, right? <laughs> run all day long. You're not doing any good. Beating against the air, really. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. When you look at Jacob, that man would have been picked last. Wholeheartedly should have been picked last. Esau, the older brother. Esau, the hunter. Think about this. Esau, as we would say, the jock. I mean, you think about that. Esau, daddy's favorite. And then you have the surplanter, the deceiver, Jacob. A mama's boy. Yet God uses this example to show his manifest love. Because in spite of everything that was wrong with flawed Jacob, God, according to his eternal love and purpose, says, look at this vile sinner to whom I love and I choose. That should give hope to everybody. 
Because if we're honest with ourselves and if we're viewing ourselves through the lens of which God views us apart from Christ, seeing the example of Jacob, a man that was a deceiver and deserved not to be chosen at all, yet God looks in this example in Romans chapter 9 as he's describing to them the beauty of election and the beauty of God's sovereign grace. He says, look at this man who deserved not to have my love, yet I love him. As it's been said many times by many preachers and many theologians and many books, we should never ask, why did God not choose all? When we understand the intimacy of God's sovereign choice and election, we should look at our own heart, then bow our heads before God and say, God, why would you choose any? And especially, God, why would you choose me? You see, that's the view we're given here, the deceiver, the surplanter. Well, the typical answer that's going to be given, and it's interesting because if you've ever talked to anybody about theology, specifically election, specifically predestination, you're going to get some of the same questions. And as Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) There's no new question. There's nothing new that God has not given us as a thorough furnisher before him to kind of show us how to answer. Well, Paul gives the first distractor statement here in Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. What is the initial reaction to everyone who first hears this? And this was probably your reaction the first time you heard it, even though we all agree with it. Most people, even if they're not mad about it, will have this question. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Or, as we would say today, is God unfair? That doesn't sound fair. Well, Paul's immediate reaction is good enough for me. God forbid. (laughs) In the strongest of terms, no, there is no unrighteousness with God. And that's good enough for me immediately. But even if you put it into a paradigm in the way other people think, unless you are a pure universalist, which means nobody at all anywhere goes to eternal torment you're going to have to wrestle with that same question. The reason I say that, because if you think that there are people that go to eternal torment or hell, you're going to have to say it was unfair that I was put in a privileged position to hear the gospel for somebody that thinks that the gospel is the means through eternal life. You see my point. Either way, you're going to have to say there is something there that's conflicting in our minds because we're not all put in the same position if we think it's by our own free will. Some folks, if you thought it was by your free will, was put in a better position to accept it than other folks, right? And so there's going to be something there to where you're going to have to say, is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair for not doing what I think he should do? But specific to election, Paul says, God forbid. He uses another Old Testament example. He's going to go to Moses now. As he has went from Jacob and Esau, he then goes to Moses, and he says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He immediately goes to the very fact that God is sovereign. Because we would look at this and say, God, is he unfair in this? This almost sounds scandalous. Ministers of the past have called it scandalous grace because it seems so unfair in our mind that God would love a sinner Yet there is no unrighteousness with God. There is no unfairness with God. Yet he, the first thing that he runs to is the very fact that Paul appeals to God's sovereignty. Somebody may immediately question God's sovereignty here. You know, 
it's interesting, we put God to a different standard in which we put ourselves. As a recently ad adopting family, when we came back, nobody looked and said, how dare you only adopt that girl? <laughs> there were thousands, millions, not really millions, it's you know about 150,000. I'm sorry, 150 million, it is millions. I had to do the math in my head. I, listen, cough drops and sickness, my, my math, I'm, I'm, I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. It's 150 million roughly in the worldwide of orphans. But you know, 150 million, you only got one? Nobody does that, they just rejoice, right? You adopted a little girl. When somebody chooses a spouse, nobody looks at that person and says, how dare you only marry that person? You know, <laughs> how dare you? Nobody does that. Why? Because we rejoice in the fact that somebody got married. Or we rejoice in the fact that even though you couldn't, with my human limitations, adopt just one, you don't say, how dare you only adopt one? Even people that have huge financial resources that could probably adopt 30 people, nobody walks up to them and says, how dare you not adopt 30 or 40 children that you have the financial means to do? No, why? Because that's their sovereign choice to do with what they want with what they have, right? Nobody walks up. You see, there's a double standard between God and humans that we hold. We think God should be held to a standard that we are not. And Paul looks here and says, no, God is sovereign. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. It's his choice. And he sums it up in this way in verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth nor him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. He looks and says, ultimately, it's not by something you've done, you've chosen to do, not something that you are doing that God chooses, um, that God chooses because of, but because of his sovereign choice. He chooses sovereignly. I've been enlightened recently about the um, way in which um, verses have come to light. You know, you don't really understand the fullness of God's love for his bride until you get married, right? It's amazing how that comes to light in our minds. I've said this before, that some of the closest times in my life that I have felt Christ's presence were at the moment in which certain scriptures were made more living to me. At my wedding, which many of y'all were at, I swear, between myself my dad, and Rebecca, I felt the very presence of Jesus Christ standing in the middle. Not only is it a symbol of Christ's love for his people, his bride, but equally I was partaking in that symbol, in that sense, as I'm getting married. Same thing when I had children. I didn't know how much my parents loved me until I had children of my own, and then I want to turn around and say, parents, mom and dad, I'm sorry for being such a heathen. I didn't know you loved me this much. <laughs> That's what this feels like. That's what this deep love feels like. And then now that we've adopted, experiencing that, that the Scripture calls us the adopted sons of God, and that's a phrase that's used to mean sons and daughters, seeing how she did not make the choice. And you have some special needs programs where people may come with either physical or emotional trauma in the background. And we think... Why would some, you know, it's such a ministry to do that for somebody that has had either emotional, mental, or physical trauma as you have chosen somebody to adopt. But brothers and sisters, when we get the picture of God adopting us, praise be unto God, it is not of him that willeth or of him that 
runneth, but it's God that showeth mercy. (laughs) One of the positive benefits of electing grace is the fact that we are not getting what we deserve in and of ourselves. But this program in which God set up through the covenant of grace, He chooses us even though in spite of ourselves we would continue to hate Him. As Romans chapter 8 says, the natural mind is at enmity against God. The very fact we're enemies against God, yet he chooses us. And, you know, you can have sides fight that love each other. The civil war in which the north and the south fought, they were enemies in a legal sense. But you would have brothers meet when the war was over and eat with each other and hug and cry that they were having to fight. Brothers and sisters, that's not the enemies that we were to God. We not only were enemies in a legal sense, we hated him. And yet God looked at us and said, I choose you. I choose you. He goes to the very next next example to prove this point as he begins to discuss or unravel uh, the election of grace to talk about is God unfair. Again, the question is, is God unfair? Is there unrighteousness with God? He continues to answer that question. First, it is God's sovereign choice. God forbid. God does what he wants, and if he didn't, he wouldn't be God. God does what he wants, and what he wants is just. Everything he does is just. He then goes to verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared through all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. He uses Pharaoh as a specific example of whom he will have mercy and whom he will hardeneth. Well, what is important about Pharaoh? Well, in that specific example you're going to see that God is sovereign in his choice to save Israel from Egypt. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to do anything at all. And Israel couldn't save themselves. And honestly, Israel, even after Moses was sent there, begins to murmur and whine and complain about the providence of God delivering them. And it's kind of funny, you know, you see every single time God delivers or God gives them manna, and manna means what is this? It would be placed down in their lap, what is this? It's manna. Doves would fly down in their lap and they could eat, and the first thing they complain about is there's not enough diversity in their diet, (laughs) right? You know, it sounds like children, we have to have that again today, I eat that every day. (laughs) Be glad you got it, right? Yet God delivered them in spite of that, knowing that they would complain. But equally, his righteousness is shown in Pharaoh. The interesting case of Pharaoh, when it said that God hardened his heart, it's not saying that God made that man stand up and defy him. That's not what it's saying. Man's sin is always laid at the feet of man. Always laid at the feet of man. God is neither the cause or solicitor of sin. However, when it says that he hardened his heart, think of this in the sense of how steel is hardened. How is steel hardened? Through external force through heat and cooling. And it's interesting when you see what God is doing here into Pharaoh, God shows him judgment. Problems, calamities, plagues. It, what does it do? It makes him mad. What would that do to a child of grace? Now, we may grumble a little bit, but it convicts us, right? What does it do to Pharaoh? Hardens him through external force. Well, sometimes God would release the pressure a little bit. What would happen to Pharaoh in that moment? You think, oh, I'm so thankful that's gone. 
I'm so thankful that pain is left, but what happens to Pharaoh? He gets mad. <laughs> he gets mad. You know, it's like if he's punished, he's mad. If he's blessed, he's mad. What is the point to that? The wicked are done no disservice. Whether punished or shown any kind of mercy in this life, they are still hardened to raise up and hate God. And we ourselves would be in that same position without the grace of God in our hearts. Even when you look in Luke chapter 16, when the rich man looked up from hell, what does he do? He doesn't say, Lord, I'm so sorry for everything that I've done. He looks up and says, could you satisfy my thirst? Still self-centered. And so he says, look, even the wicked themselves, as exampled in Pharaoh, God showed him judgment, God showed him mercy, yet both times his heart was hardened. The detractor immediately comes back up, and Paul does this. He does this devil's advocate type thing where he goes back and forth and says, somebody may say this, somebody may say this, and you have to catch on to what he's doing to make sure you're not quoting the person that's arguing against what he's saying. Well, the next question, thou wilt say then unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Why does he condemn any? Now, you have to pay close attention to this specific example or you're going to miss the beauty of it. He says, Nabed, O man, first again, he says, Nabed, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? The first question is, are you going to argue back with God? Well, the implicit answer is no, of course not. <laughs> first, you're questioning the God that is sovereign, the God of the universe, the God that created everything, the God that still holds everything together according to his general providence. It would fly apart if God did not provide the means through which it stayed together. But then he says, Shall the thing formed to say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has the potter power over the clay in the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? He uses an example of clay. Now notice, he doesn't say there's two specific clumps of clay but there's one clump of clay. There's just one. Unmolded. It's not been formed. And the idea is that he can take what clay he wants and form it how he will. What does that mean? The clump of clay is representative of humans stuck in depravity. God's done us no disservice, right? If he leaves us in our sins, we're already a part of that clump of clay. We're already in that. But God in his mercy, meaning we don't get what we do deserve, and his grace, meaning we get something that we didn't earn, pulls some clay off and molds it. And he further illustrates this by saying, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much longsuffering? They're not prepared aforehand like the ones later. They're longsuffered, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. It is one, one lump, one clump, yet God takes some out and molds them to his glory. What is the pov positive effect or blessing that we should take away from this? You see, sometimes you could get to the end of this and you'd read it and you'd 
first, it's almost fearful because we, you know, sometimes I've said this before, sometimes we could read through this and before we even get to the detractor statement, we may already start saying, well, that sounds unfair. Then we read where Paul says, <laughs> somebody may say, that sounds unfair. Then we'll say, well, why does he find fault? And, and then we read, oh, wow, he's already answering that. And we get to the end and we're almost fearful. Brothers and sisters, the blessing of God's electing grace should not cause fear. Why? Because it is the only hope for any saved sinner. Apart from God pulling some clay out of that lump, we would all stay as vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Let's turn to Psalm 65, and we're going to close here. The 65th Psalm, probably one of my favorite Verse 4, um, I can quote from memory because I've said it so many times, but the structure that we have here, and we have to end pretty quickly because it's, the time is escaping us. The psalmist looks first and says, Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. He says, God is praiseworthy. He then says in verse 3, Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgression shall purge them away. Something we can get from this text, before we can fully understand the beauty of the sovereignty of God in election, we have to understand two things. God is holy and just, and sinners cannot stand before him. And then in verse 3, iniquities prevail against me. Two things we have to understand in leading into verse 4. When he says, blessed or privileged is the man whom thou choosest, and calls us to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Brothers and sisters, election, God's sovereign choice, God's determinate counsel, his predestinating will is not something to be scared of, something to be feared, but it is the only hope for any sinner that falls down before God and says, iniquities prevail against me. Because if I were to get my choice before a holy God, then I would continue to stay that vessel of wrath. But blessed is the man whom thou, whom God has chosen. And notice the cause and effect here. God chooses and he calls us to approach unto him. And for what purpose? That a sinner that doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God and then the iniquities prevail against them, that that sinner may dwell in the courts of the Most High. To the poorest individuals born in the lowest of systems to dwell in the very presence of God. Looking up saying, Lord, I'm just as Jacob. I deserve nothing. But praise be unto you that in your sovereign choice, in your mercy, you chose me. As I said during the sermon, we should never ask, Lord, why didn't you choose any? We should look at our hearts and say, my God, my Lord, you chose me. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of your word and your truth. Thank you, gracious God, that you have blessed us to come to a knowledge of the fullness of your electing grace and how it is unconditional, Lord, and how that you have separated out a certain innumerable host that spans throughout the entirety of the world, that it spans both before the cross and after the cross, that, Lord, an innumerable host that... Lord, no man can number, 
Lord, we praise you to know that there will be no empty seat in heaven. That, Lord, every sinner that you have determined to save will be saved. Praise you, my God, that in spite of my sins, both in the past, in the present, and, Lord, in the future, that in spite of what you saw in me and what I did, that your grace abounded where sin had abounded. Gracious God, let us, Lord, though we stand in fear and awe of this electing grace, Lord, bow our heads in praise, knowing, Lord, that you are just, you are good, and, Lord, that if we feel your presence in our hearts, if we have approached you, if we can feel joy in your holy temple, that praise be unto God, we know it starts that you have chosen us and that you've blessed us. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. In Christ's name, and amen.